Welcome to the LPEC podcast. My name is Kirby Chuck. Joined this evening by Michael Spangler and Benjamin Hicks. Michael, how are you doing this evening? Doing well. Thank you, Cody. Glad to be here. Benjamin, how about yourself? Lot to be thankful for, Cody, and looking forward to the discussion. Great. So this evening we're going to talk about 1689 federalism. And I thought I could just give a brief maybe outline of what that is. And then we could get into some of our agreements with the theology and then get into the meat of the discussion, which will be the disagreements. So 1689 federalism, to state it simply, is a covenant theology. So it seeks to examine the covenants of the scripture from uh, the covenant of works, the covenant uh, of grace, we believe made with Adam, Genesis 3, with Noah, with Abraham, um, with Israel, with David, and then some would even say with the exiles, and then of course the new covenant. Covenant theology seeks to look at all that and exegete it and say, what does the scripture say on this and, and put it into a system? So it's called 1689 Federalism. I believe Brandon Adams, which is he's really the chief Internet proponent of this system. I believe he's the one who coined that term some years ago. And um, it makes you think of the 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith. An important distinction to keep in mind is it's not the required covenant theology of that confession. So you can go broader than this specific covenant theology. So you could hold to essentially what we would hold to reformed federalism, if you want to call it that, or Westminster federalism minus pedo baptism, if you're a Baptist. Uh, it's an increasingly popular system. I think in the past few years, maybe the past 10 years broadly, but especially I think the past five years or so, I've seen it. Uh, in terms of lectures and sermons and things online growing in popularity. In terms of where it comes from, they say it comes from the 17th century, developed especially from Nehemiah Cox. So they've got this book, Covenant Theology from Adam to Christ, where they've got edited Nehemiah Cox um, on Abraham with John Owen in his exposition of Hebrews chapter and then another important work would be this work by Pascal Denal, The Distinctiveness, the Distinctiveness of Baptist Covenant Theology, or of a Historical Theology, Comparing Baptist and Pado-Baptist Covenant Theology. And then the most recent one, um, which if you're just wanting one, I would recommend read this one, The Mystery of Christ, His Covenant, and His Kingdom by Dr. Samuel Renahan. I think this was published just a few years ago probably the clearest and you're going to get really the meat of the theology and he's the chief academic proponent of 1689 federalism today so uh benjamin michael did you want to add anything to what i said there in terms of 1689 federalism before we start yeah maybe i'll, I'll just speak about my own experience cody it, it was um Interesting, myself growing up in more of a broadly evangelical Baptist home, um, was saved under, I, I believe, more of a Arminian Baptist perspective. And uh, coming to some of these discussions, um, it's just been interesting. I, I came to a paedo-Baptist conviction, understanding uh, especially the um, 
the relationship of the entire Bible and informing the question about the church and the role of, of baptism and all the all those things. Um, here in uh, since uh, going to seminary and going into my my ministry, I, I've developed strong friendships with many Baptist brothers who are coming more from this perspective. And uh, here in uh, Canada, I've, I've really had occasion to uh, become uh, very close with some people who hold this perspective. I would say it is certainly a, a dis disagreement between brothers in Christ. And uh, it's one that um, I certainly have, have respect for people who hold more of uh, this particular Baptist or 1689 Baptist perspective, because on a lot of issues, we have things in common, like the gospel and the crown rights of Christ and so on. But uh, I'm looking forward to getting into this discussion because I think that the things that separate us are still important and we really ought to be expecting that the Lord will guide his people into the unity of, the, of his truth and in particular on things as important as uh, our, our doctrine of the covenants and our doctrine about the sacraments, including baptism. So looking forward to the discussion. Thank you, brother. Michael, did you want to add anything? Sure, just that I come from a very different perspective. I grew up liberal Presbyterian, and I didn't really know many Baptists. I recognize that here in the South, especially, most of our Presbyterians are former Baptists, but I'm not one of them. So I don't have a lot of firsthand experience with this. I've not known many people who are into the 1689 federalism, though I do know some Reformed Baptists. I would ask a clarifying question from what you said, if I understood correctly, not everyone who calls himself Reformed Baptist would say he holds to 1689 federalism. Yes, that is correct. So that a few years ago, when I was looking into this, I had noted there were some Reformed Baptists who really seemed to dislike 1689 federalism. Some of the men saying that they weren't, they weren't, quite putting Owen into his proper context, saying that even there were some spurious claims being made with Nehemiah Cox. I've not investigated those claims to know whether they're true or not. I've not taken a deep dive on Owen to validate them for myself. But I, I, I just raise that to say, uh, I think it, it created a bit of a stir, but it seems to me it's died down some, at least among, among some Baptists. But yes, you're correct. Okay, well, I look forward to learning more. Great. I'll, I'll, I'd just like to say one, one thing about that, Cody, and that is that yeah. I think you're you're correct, which is um, that uh, not all uh, people who are Baptists, certainly, and certainly not even all people who would call themselves Reformed Baptists, would draw all the lines um, and uh, cross all the I's in, in the same way that uh, Denault does and, and, other, and others who hold to this point of view, but I think in uh, getting into this discussion, I think what we're going to see is that um, uh, that um, this is probably the most rigorous and um, and internally consistent, maybe speaking for myself, uh, way of getting around uh, the reform position concerning the baptism of infants. So uh, I think in the, getting into this discussion, we're going to see that there are many things that are brought out that uh, would be relevant to anyone who's thinking through the the, um, the relevance of baptism, and especially trying to think through that from a position that's perspective of uh, reform theology. 
Yes, very good. Thank you for adding that. Um, I'll just speak briefly to my own experience. So I come from a Baptist background. Armenian Baptists came into the you know, dispensational Calvinism, increasingly confessional, was confessional Baptists. Then I started studying covenant theology and paedo-baptism and then the underlying hermeneutic. I took about a year and a half to do that. Did a deep dive on all kinds of stuff. And then came out on the other end, paedo-baptist. But I wanted to remain a Baptist. It would have been a lot easier socially and in terms of opportunities and other things. Uh, but the Lord wouldn't have it. And um, this book, Denal's book, when I read it, was really one of the first things that started setting me off away personally from the Baptist position. Because I think he does he does a pretty good job actually of presenting the Pado baptist side. And I thought, okay, that makes a lot of sense. I was very attracted to that. <laughs> so the book backfired. Yeah, well, not to be pejorative, but I have seen men call it the, the Presby maker or the Baptist killer book. So, <laughs> Okay. Um, one thing I want to say before we got into the outline is I think sometimes in these discussions, um, we forget these are moral matters. And this particularly has to deal with the third commandment, how we interpret the word of God and the ninth commandment upholding the truth. I just raise that because I do find sometimes it, it appears to me there's academic ambivalence um, about these things. And um, I don't think we have we have liberty to enter into something like that. We're still dealing with the Lord's word and it is a weighty matter. So. Let's begin then with our agreements with 1689 federalism. Uh, the first one, as far as I can see, is that we are agreed in terms of the distinction of the visible and invisible church. That's what we would typically call it, but they would call it God's view, or excuse me, man's view, God's view of the church. So Pascal Denal, for example, page 94 of his book, in a footnote, he essentially admits that there's no meaningful substantive difference between these two concepts, although the terms used are, are different. And then Brandon Adams in the uh, Reformed Brotherhood podcast, episode 293, he admits the same thing. Um, Benjamin, are you aware of this? Or do you want to speak to it? Yeah, I think that um, that is hugely important uh, when we get into these discussions. What I what I see is that um, uh, from uh, from a uh, reform point of view or from a, a Presbyterian point of view, uh, we would uh, we would be burdened to see a consistency in our uh, theological system. And particularly on this point, understanding that there is a difference between the elect church or those who are appointed to eternal life, effectually called, justified, sanctified, um, sancti and uh, ultimately glorified. Difference between those who are true Christians and those who are um, uh, or are attached to the visible church. So uh, we would we would point to a number of uh, passages, for example, in uh, the um, in uh, Steve, Stephen the Martyr sermon in the in the book of Acts, he speaks about the church in the wilderness in the days of of Moses, and so we would say that certainly not everyone in that uh, 
in that church was elect or was or was saved, and yet it was a true church according to the the scriptures. And so from that, we would see that a lot uh, a lot from our system needs to um, needs to be conformed to that. And I think that if you, from my interactions and from my reading, including uh, Denault's book, it does seem as though he affirms that. Uh, but I, I would say that a lot of it comes down to the details. Um, is that that really being consistently upheld in the system? That would be maybe a question uh, that we we would ask our brothers who hold this position. Yeah, I think you're right. Um, I think it comes down definitely to to the details and differences even in emphasis. One of the things he notes is um, this is simply, quote, this is a quote from his footnote. This is simply the historic articulation of the visible, invisible church distinction as a difference in viewpoint, man's versus God's, and not two churches, end quote. So when I listened to Brandon Adams talk about this on that podcast, he seemed to be saying, yeah, we're, we're saying the same thing. We're just maybe using a little bit of different language, different emphases. Um, so that's we're agreed there. The second agreement would be on. May I ask a question on that first one, Cody? Yeah, please. So I wonder about this language, man's view, God's view. Do they mean to say that when God looks at the church, he does not in any way consider non-elect members of the church? to be members of the church. I'm not sure that, that, that God doesn't say, God says that they're not church members. I'm not sure. I'm not sure that they would affirm that. I think okay. that they would approach it more in terms of fallibility versus infallibility in terms of knowing who is and is not elect. So they're approaching, you think of it from like, from this perspective, they're, they're, they're thinking, okay, it's the true church is the elect church, which we would say, yeah, amen. And so that's the perspective or the, the glasses that they've got on when they come to this, this question. Does that help? But isn't, doesn't the visible church, including those merely in outward union, doesn't, isn't that the true church in a certain sense? I mean, it is. It's not the elect church. It's not the invisible church. Right. But there is a reality to the visible church. It's still properly the church. I I just wonder if, there's, if it, there is a more disagreement there. We can freely use the word church to include its non-elect members. It doesn't seem like they're willing to do that. They're saying that's just because that's just a happenstance because of man's fallible judgment. Right. I, no, I think you're. I think you're correct there, Benjamin. It looked like you had something to say. Go ahead. Yeah, I would say that, uh, and this is obviously, I think that within the the broad tradition, you're going to get different people emphasizing themselves themselves in different ways. I would just say, as someone who grew up in the Baptist context and continues to regularly, um, uh, continues to regularly um, have have uh, interactions with people. Uh, from the Baptist point of view, that um, what you're often uh, uh, coming up at is that salvation is really essential to the definition of the church, right? So even if they do have categories or ways of thinking about uh, those who are um, who are visibly in the in the church, 
generally speaking, that's not what they would see the the church to be in, that, in its essence and its in its true um, in its true identity. It's it's those who are appointed to eternal life, and so one of the uh, the language of First John, uh, where it says they went out from us for they were not of us, right, would be important for their understanding. They would say that it's the true church are those who are elect. And if they are not elect, then they're not truly the church. I think, and generally speaking, I think that is at least a principle they would want to hold in some form. And um, yeah, I would say that there's, from my point of view, a deficiency there. Michael, did you want to respond? No, that's useful. Thank you. I'm sure more of it will come out as we go on. Yeah, I was going to make a note there. You see one manifestation, I think, in that emphasis um, that the Baptists do tend, I think, to emphasize the subjective and they tend to foreground that. I'm not saying that's a good or a bad thing. I'm just noting that as a fact. In my experience, having been a Baptist, having read their material, so on and so forth, that is a tendency they tend to do. And when we come to things like circumcision and baptism, I think you see that manifest uh, as well. So the second one was on the salvation of Old Testament saints. And this is that same podcast episode, Reformed Brotherhood, episode 293, where Brandon Adams, uh, chief internet proponent of 1689, says, and we're basically agreed on this point. We agree that everyone who was saved in the Old Testament was saved by Christ. So at that root level, that's that's what they're saying. So it's not like classic dispensationalism where they would sometimes say they were saved by works. So um, there we agree. But semantically and in terms of emphases, I do think there are differences. So one of the words you'll hear them often use is retroactivity. So in their system, they say the new covenant is the covenant of grace and it has a retroactivity which reaches back into the old testament and that's how old testament saints were saved so before i go any further michael what do you think about that idea in that language yes i'd prefer to explain it in the more presbyterian way that there's one covenant of grace with two dispensations and leave the phrase new covenant to speak of the new dispensation of the covenant of grace. But I understand even some Presbyterians will use new covenant in contrast to the covenant of works to speak of the covenant of grace itself. So in that sense, if the new covenant is the covenant of grace, then of course it was present in the old Testament. And I'm glad that we agree against dispensationalism and there are reformed and paedo-baptist versions of dispensationalism that denigrate the old testament saints as having less of the salvation of christ and um, perhaps there is some remnant of dispensationalism still in 1689 federalism but i'm glad on this important point we agree that adam and david were saved just as we were Amen. Benjamin, did you want to speak to that? Yeah, I think that uh, the way you're framing this is very helpful, Code, because it's good to see that those things that we uh, share in common. Um, 
I think that certainly we should never speak about covenant theology apart from Christ himself. Um, that, um, as Isaiah says, he is a, a covenant given to the people, right? So the, the very heart of the covenant of grace is found in his person and work. And um, I think that one, one thing that might be helpful that would bring the dialogue forward is if uh, both sides would would draw a closer connection between what we speak of as the covenant and what we speak of as the gospel, right? And so if, if we're all saying that we are saved by Christ, right, um, then we, we all, and, and that only by faith in him, um, that we trust in him to be justified of our, uh, of our sins and to be uh, righteous before God, then uh, we ought to say that the revelation of that is the gospel. But that a, a proper way to speak of the gospel is uh, following biblical language, a covenant between God and man where Christ is set forth as our mediator to reconcile us to God. And so that both our forgiveness of sins and our eternal life and our sanctification is all found in Christ. And so uh, when we when we think about that, we're always going to recognize that what Christ actually did in his in, in his incarnation, in his ministry, his life and death, resurrection, and so on, that is where our our, our salvation rests. And so we can, of course, recognize that there is an important difference in living before and after that, that um, salvation is accomplished. But as far as the application and the appropriation of that, we are wanting to say that it's the, it is the same. Um, and I think that when we speak about the, the covenant of grace being one in substance, uh, that it is uh, essentially identical in every age of the world. That is what we're saying, that it's that Christ works in the same way in sinners to bring them to himself. And at the basis of that salvation is, is his work, whether it was before um, his incarnation or after. Thank you for that. Yeah. I would May I ask another question, Cody? Yes. Do these 1689 men have a concept conception of the um, eternal covenant between the Father and the Son? The covenant of redemption. Yes, I believe yes. that they do. Yes, I'm not quite do sure. They, do they tie the salvation of Old Testament saints to that? That they could be saved because Christ had already promised to take on their guilt? I can't say for sure right off. I would suspect that they would say yes. And at that point, brothers, I, I can actually speak a little bit to that because I, I looked into this a little bit when I was researching the covenant of redemption. And unlike the um, the Westminster Confession, there is actually an, a more explicit statement about the covenant between the Father and the Son. Um, and they inherited that from the Salvoy Declaration, where John Owen and others felt that was important enough to include. And so it's actually retained in a bit more of a developed form in uh, their uh, confession than all, even in the Presbyterian confession. So at least in principle, they would, uh, they would affirm that if they're holding to their confession. Okay, thank you for that, Benjamin. That's helpful. Yeah, actually, they, they've got a few additions to their confession that I, that I like. They've got a section on um, the pastor and his work that I think is an excellent summary. Okay, the next, the next point of agreement would be actually on that, the confession. If you look at the Westminster and a lot of Baptists, chapter uh, 8, paragraph 6, they are, as far as I'm aware, it's just a copy-paste, they're the exact same 
And that has created some confusion because you've got guys like in our camp, Pato Baptists, who say, wait a minute, how do you maintain some of your distinctive points in terms of the Abrahamic and Mosaic covenants and also Amen, uh, chapter eight, paragraph six? It seems to be it seems to be a contradiction or it seems to be trouble there. Um, so I would just say the confessions say that it's the same thing, but I believe once again, it kind of hit this for the third or fourth time. Now it comes down to semantics and, and emphases and the way you approach and how you articulate yourself concerning these points. Um, and so now we can just get into the disagreements and we'll start with the, the Abrahamic covenant. And so we've either got quotes from um, Dr. Renahan or from Nehemiah Cox or someone else, or I've just got their summary principles under these headings. So the Abrahamic covenant, we can look at uh, Dr. Renahan. Here's a quote from him concerning circumcision. He says, the primary purpose of circumcision was to mark the boundaries of the people of this covenant. False. Like <laughs> False. Romans gonna... four eleven, and Abraham received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of faith. Amen. Doesn't that, doesn't that disprove it, right there? Well, okay. Here's what I've thought about doing. I can maybe play the sixteen eighty nine Federalist objector. <laughs> Go ahead. So, no, no, no. Uh, you misunderstand, sir. Uh, we've in fact have John Lightfoot on our side from the Westminster Assembly and can say that um, it was a sign and seal to Abraham. It's not that objectively in and of itself, it became that to Abraham because of his faith. What say you to that, sir? I say uh, that he might be the father of all them that believe and the father of circumcision to them who are not of the circumcision only but also walk in the steps of that faith of our father Abraham. So, you know, there's going to be an argument made there. It doesn't say it directly, but if circumcision sealed his faith and he's the father of the faithful, the believers, it would make sense that they receiving the same sign, many of them at the same time as him, that would also in the elect seal their faith. I completely agree with you, brother. And it's later in that same chapter, isn't it? That, uh, he says to chapter four of Romans, verse 23, not was not written for his, that is Abraham's sake alone, that it was imputed to him, but for us also. Now, there he's speaking of, of imputed righteousness, but surely that would apply to circumcision as well, would it not? What do you what do you think about this point, uh, Benjamin? Yeah, this is sort of the, the frustration, I think, um, because. Um, I think that from our point of view, when we are trying to make a point about our overall um, system of, of covenant theology, I think that our, our instinct, or at least my instinct would be that we ought to begin with those books that are, that are treating of that subject, particularly in terms of the relation between the old covenant and the new covenant. And so that's primarily going to be, um, Romans, Galatians, Hebrews, parts of 2 Corinthians, other passages of the New Testament important as well. And, um, and, and 
to my thinking, that is going to give you a, a good place to stand as far as seeing how Paul understood and thought about it. Um, to to give our, our brothers their due in the, in the other camp, one can uh, perhaps appreciate if, if you if you would attempt to at least uh, bring these things on the table from a biblical theological point of view, beginning in the book of Genesis and working your way through, um, then that, that is also a valid way to think about it. And I think what they would say is that when you come to the book of Genesis, uh, where, where circumcision is instituted, and you see that um, uh, carried forward, obviously the separation of a particular people um, according to their uh, connection to Abraham and and in connection to things like the promise of the land and and so forth it's also going to uh, be very important right um, and then if if you just begin with that with that you might come to the conclusion that's the primary thing and whatever Paul has to say later on it's going to be a, a subsidiary point and it's it's certainly not going to overturn our basic operating assumption um i i would still tend to think that that um what i'm what i'm advocating is the more consistent approach is that we ought to give due regard yes to biblical theology but when we're we're developing a coherent theological system it's going to be primarily uh paul's treatments of it and and those of the new testament that are going to carry primacy right so it sounds like to me you're saying basic hermeneutical point the more clear interprets the less clear. Paul's very clear in Romans, Galatians, Hebrews, Second Corinthians. And we need to understand things in this clear light. Yeah, I agree with you. So let's ask a question then. If you're saying, if someone says like this, the primary purpose of circumcision was to mark the boundaries of the people of this covenant. I do believe they're talking about the outward or national boundaries. What are the implications of saying that? Where does that lead? How does that affect your view of the Old Testament and of the church in the Old Testament? Michael? Well, it does seem to make it more earthly than God intended. God certainly has a covenant chiefly with one nation. And typically people would have to come into that nation when they join the church as well unlike in the New Testament where it's all nations. But, but even so, it seems to make circumcision just a national or natural or physical sign. But even the sign itself in the cutting off of the flesh and the casting it away and the blood that is shed especially considered in light of the sacrificial system as part of the ceremonial law, how could it not be chiefly about Christ, the believer, about holiness, regeneration, salvation? It seems so obvious in light of everything else we see in scripture. So let me come in with the Baptist um, background that might help. I agree with everything you said, but me as a Baptist reading my Bible, I've got a sharp distinction between Old Testament and New Testament somewhere, somehow. And when I read the Old Testament, it's basically a history of this carnal people, and it's just historical. And then finally, 
when Christ came into the world, spirituality arrived, and now everything has become spiritual. People of God previously were carnal, physical, and so on and so forth, and now they're they're spiritual. Benjamin, what would you say to somebody who has that view, that kind of broad view of of the Bible that I think informs um, is underlying this distinction they have? Yeah, so I'd I'd bring them, I think, to the words of Christ when he was interacting with the Sadducees. And I'm going to quote here from Mark chapter um, 12 here, um, beginning, and I'll just, I'll begin reading in verse 18, just so we understand the context. So Mark chapter 12, verse 18. Then come unto him the Sadducees, which say there is no resurrection. And they asked him, saying, Master, Moses, who wrote, who wrote, Sorry, Master, Moses wrote unto us, If a man's brother die and leave his wife behind him and leave no children, that his brother should take his wife and raise up seed unto his brother. Now there were seven brethren. The first took a wife and dying left no seed. The second took her and died, neither left he any seed. The third likewise. And the, and the seven had her and left no seed. Last of all, the woman died also. In the res resurrection, therefore, when they shall rise, whose wife shall she be of them? For the seven had her to wife. This is really just a, a moral problem that they're raising, trying to um, say that the, the a final resurrection of the dead is is um, inconsistent with the law because you have this woman who's been married to all these different uh, men. So it's a it's a pretty a tedious argument that he has to contend with, but Jesus re replies in verse 24. And Jesus answering said unto them, Do ye not therefore err, because ye know not the scriptures, neither the power of God? For when they shall rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are as the angels which are in heaven. So he says that they just don't understand the nature of the resurrection, that, that marriage has a uh, has not an eternal significance for, for us, and so therefore their whole foundation is wrong. But then he says in verse 26, and as touching the dead, that they rise, have ye not read the book of Moses? Now in the bush, God spake unto them, saying, I am the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. He therefore do greatly err. And so what I think is significant there is Jesus takes as the, the foundational point that they're missing the very heart of God's covenant to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and also to Moses, because this is revealed through the fire, through the the fire, the burning bush. And he says that the very heart of what is said there is that he is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he says that because he is the God of the dead and not of the living, therefore we, it must follow that not only have Abraham and Isaac um, eternal life but that they will rise again on, on the judgment day. So all that can be proven just by looking at what, what is said there. And I think that that tells you that the heart of the, of the old covenant was a revelation of eternal life. It wasn't just about temporal blessings. It was about spiritual um, and, in, and eternal blessings. And I, and um, as soon as uh, I, I should say that this isn't just a set that I came to by by reading the text, although I think it is there, but um, when I read um, Francis Turretin's treatment of that in, in defense of 
the um, the reform view as over against some of the papists who were denigrating the salvation of Old Testament saints. It, uh, as soon as I saw that, it seemed it became abundantly clear to me what Jesus is saying, and it, it became very enriching reading the Old Testament, seeing that wherever God would say those words, "I am the I am your God" or "I am uh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob," then that is not contrary to the gospel. That is that, or aside from the gospel, that is the heart of the gospel itself, and therefore the, the old covenant is a spiritual covenant. Mm. That's good. Yeah, amen, brother. Michael, did you want to speak to that at all? Yeah, just two quick things. One is Christ says to the Pharisees in John 5, search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, which he affirms. The scriptures, of course, will be the Old Testament scriptures. And in Luke 24, he shows the same when he's with the disciples on the road to Emmaus, that the whole Old Testament was about him. In types and shadows, yes, but no less about him, with less clarity than the New Testament, but the substance is exactly the same. And then the other thing is, I would assume because of this, and from what I know, it's true that Baptists must not sing the Psalms very often. Because how could you mistake the piety of the Psalms for an earthly, for people who are in a chiefly earthly, physical, natural covenant? That's not at all how the Psalms read. Psalm 23, I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. You restore, thou restores my soul, etc. And, and I, I yeah. just wanted to speak to that, Michael, because covenant theology, uh, in, in its, um, in my own life, it wasn't. Per, I wasn't persuaded into it through some argument, but my first experience in Reformed worship was actually an exclusive psalmody um, Reformed church, um, and. Um, the coming from a Baptist point of view, we had never sung the Psalms, not once, no, never have we done that. And just coming into a place of worship and taking the the words of the Psalms upon our lips as New Covenant Christians and singing them in in that context, immediately I I understood the the weight of what was happening. Right, that that the story of Israel is our story, and that the realization of those things uh, is is in Christ and in his, his true people, right? And so um, to me, that just that that mere fact uh, in my own, my own experience brought me to a love, a love of covenant theology. And it would be, to me, very difficult to under, understand how someone could sing the Psalms and, and, and regularly and uh, integrate that into their, into their identity and not have, have convictions about covenant theology. I, I do actually think that that is one of the real um, spiritual deficits of the contemporary uh, American and Canadian churches, frankly, which is that because because we're weak in in, uh, in the Psalms, we're not singing the Psalms as we should be for the most part. We're simply weak in, in our overall theology of the scriptures because the whatever else we may disagree with our Baptist brothers, I hope we wouldn't disagree that in uh, three different places, apostles command us to sing the Psalms. Minimally, they command us to sing the psalms. So, if you're singing all um, all 150 psalms re regularly, I hope that that is informing your view of, of the covenant. Hmm. To the credit of one Baptist church here locally, they do sing psalms. They don't sing psalms exclusively. That was um, an effort they took up a few years ago. The, I don't think the psalms are always the best translated. 
Um, sometimes they're paraphrased, but I think it's better than nothing. Um, but it, I do think it, it is conflicting with a lot of the basic Baptistic presuppositions. Um, what do you do with the imprecatory song? You know, if everything is spiritual and, and all there's this general love and, and we don't have anything to say to the enemies of God or, you know, the more dispensationalist uh, Baptists that tend to kind of woodenly look at those Psalms and say, Oh, that's about David. And so ergo, it's not about Christ. It's not about the church. It's not about us, not spiritual, so on and so forth. Um, or, I've seen this too. Michael, you spoke to this in the, um, that Gospel Riot podcast episode on faith and works. Men will go to a lot of these psalms that speak to individual piety, and then they'll make it all about Christ. And then they'll totally gut, gut it of any of its demands upon us today, um, which I think is a misuse of, of those as well. Just to your point too, Michael, um, speaking about the road to Emmaus and the other scripture you reference, I think of second Timothy three, Paul says to Timothy, thou hast known from infancy, the Holy scripture able to make thee wise unto salvation. What scripture was that? That was the old Testament. The new Testament yes. has not been completed uh, and received yet. The church. So that was the old Testament. Timothy is a new covenant minister, minister of the spirit, if you will, where's his material coming from chiefly from the old Testament. So, it can't be this unspiritual thing. It seems to me to, to even suggest that uh, is on the face of it, totally misunderstanding what it's about. One more question on this point of circumcision. We would say baptism has replaced it in the new covenant. So here's the question. Does baptism outwardly mark the boundaries of the new covenant people in any way, Michael? Well, yes, it is an outward sign like circumcision. It's an outward sign and it has an outward application. It does mark the visible church so that even the non-elect or the elect who are not yet regenerate who are baptized they do objectively and outwardly and externally have a relation to Christ and a membership in the visible church. And that's marked by baptism. And they have special promises and blessings that the world doesn't have that baptism does signify. But baptism still is a promise and a demand to them that they would take up its substance by faith in Christ. And those who do, baptism is for them what circumcision was for Abraham, a seal of the righteousness of faith. Right. So we would say, yes, there is an element to baptism, just as there was to circumcision. But you can't make that the main thing or the mere thing. There's a there's a spiritual substance. There's a reality there that it's communicating. Benjamin, would you speak to that just a little bit? Certainly. And I to my thinking, this is one of the one of the weaknesses of reform of, um, of Baptist theology as it's worked its way out since the, the foundation of the Baptist movement, which I think that the 1689 Baptists in, in general want to get away from. Um, however, even among, among their uh, 
their group, I have seen that there is such a focus on the individual Christian in baptism that the the very uh, fact that it is a um, a means of grace uh, where God communicates His grace to His to His people is not really uh, is not really thought about so much. So it is uh, is something we're commanded to do as believers. It's part of our worship to God, and it is uh, that which um, marks uh, someone who has true faith. Right. That's and that's kind of what they're going to be emphasizing, what they're going to be leaning upon. And um, I, like, for example, I know one dear brother who I've um, gone out street preaching uh, with. Uh, and so he, he might be listening now. Maybe he, he'll he'll figure this out. But I don't say this with any disrespect to him because I, I suppose it's in a way consistent with his position. But uh, he was um, converted later in life after he professed the faith for, for many years. And so the Lord, in a wonderful way, humbled him and showed him his sin and his need for Christ. And the Lord, Lord brought him to, to salvation. And so what, um, when he explained this, it happened in his, in his context where he's, he's currently, um, currently a member. His pastor said, well, you were saved so many years after you were um after you're baptized, so you have to be baptized again. So that that would be their understanding. And you, I've I've talked to even people who I I think are are very theologically informed about this. Even um, even at the seminary where I was attending, I was talking to a Baptist brother, and basically he, he held the same position that if someone is persuaded later on that they were not truly converted uh, when they were baptized, and their baptism is not valid, right? So you see how much of our of the the truth of baptism it's really suspended upon uh, our own assurance of faith, really, um, which I think has led to a, a real damage um, spiritual environment in many Baptist churches. I'm sorry to say, but the 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 nature of the objectivity of the covenant, the objectivity of the promises of God, is something that's that's there but on the other side of it right the fact that assurance is not something that is granted in in every way at, at every time in the same way to every christian right so that if if um someone every time they have a crisis of assurance they would get rebaptized. that would that would really go against the grain of the new testament in my thinking and and more i think even more seriously but compared to even the other two, which is that the the lack of discriminating preaching in Baptist churches, not to say that there aren't also Presbyterian Reformed churches that don't have discriminating preaching as well. But I think that that methodologically and, and uh, theologically, um, there's a real tension. If you would say that that um, the very the very essence of the church is your profession of faith and that the validity of your baptism is your profession of faith, um, I, as I've just seen it work out pastorally and and practically, it, it winds up that there's there can be a lot of presumption that that goes along with that. Again, wanting to draw appropriate distinctions, there are Baptists who don't do that. Praise the Lord! But I I think that the the system tends to uh, lead itself towards that if if consistently followed. I think that that's a fair criticism. 
Benjamin. One thing I've said with brethren a number of times is that in the wider Baptist world, I don't think it's as much a problem in maybe the Reformed Baptist world, but in the wider Baptist world, I do see that a problem of uh, what I would call uh, evangelical sacramentalism. Basically, the you know you walked the aisle, or you raised your hand, your hand, and, and closed your eyes and prayed, which the Lord may use, but often what ends up happening is it's made the singular event that you constantly reference back to, and that's where you get your assurance. I did this thing. I walked the aisle, signed the card, went through whatever the motion was. Um, I do think that that's one of the possible outworkings of some of their their distinctions, although less so, I think, among our Reformed Baptist brethren. So on this point, we would say, yes, actually, there is, a, there is an outward element to circumcision, but our disagreement would be it is not the primary purpose of it. And I've said this to some Baptist brethren on the ground here, talking with them, trying to walk them through how to think through this in terms of our how we order things, order priority. So you say, was circumcision genealogical, physical, racial, national? Yes. Was it that primarily? No. It's religious, redemptive, covenantal, has respect to uh, the gospel. That's what it is primarily. And so this is one of the things, too, I think, comes up is there's an there's a misemphasis either something is put in the first place that doesn't shouldn't be there or what should be in first place is totally omitted from the equation and when you do that you come out with with these errors benjamin did you want to say something yeah and, and i think that um the the resolution of that um and and i think one of the things i would hope is that through further dialogue, right, and through the work of the Spirit, the um, the the Reform movement, broadly considered in North America, could actually come to some kind of consensus on these points, right? Because if we really believe in that the the Scriptures are the Word of God, and we believe that the Spirit of God is is working in His people, we ought to be working towards work re resolving these differences and coming to the the biblical point of view. Um, and I think that uh, to that end, right, part of the discussion that we we ought to be seeking is putting all of the biblical data on the on the table. So, for example, in Genesis 17, you certainly do have um, the uh, emphasis upon the physical posterity of Abraham will be circumcised. You also do have it. It begins with a glorious promise right that I, I am your shield your exceeding great reward right walk before me be thou perfect things that that speak of um the relationship of god to every one of his people even to this day that, that brings a lot of comfort to believers but also later on in that chapter you're going to see the circumcision not only of the of the physical posterity of abraham but also all of his male slaves or or servants and they're the the principle being that Abraham, yeah, he is the the um, the beginning of a new national church, a new national people. He is also the head of a of a household, and as the head of a household, he has spiritual responsibility for those under his authority. Uh, 
particularly his his slaves who are not those who have a specific promise of um, of uh, of an of of the land of Canaan, but by virtue of being under his his um, under his spiritual headship, right, they are still receiving the sign of the covenant there. And so that would be just an example of to where I think that some of uh, some some erroneous understandings we could simply dispense with if we would simply look at the at the data. Um, and I think that there would be other examples like that. Yeah, to that point, as you raise that about the household, that makes me think the Lord says, I have known him that he may command his household to keep the way of the Lord. And so I'll I'll put forth this idea and then I'll ask you, Michael, if you think it's valid. Well, the way I see what's going on with Abraham in relation to his household and religion is God comes covenant, especially with him and says, you are you are a believer now. Um, you're to walk before me. You're to keep you're to keep my commands. You're to be holy. And you now have an added obligation by virtue of the fifth commandment. And because of your covenant relation to me now, where you have to instruct all those in your household in the true religion as well. Would you agree with that? Well, it, do, it does seem that the covenant of grace applied to him there does bind him to do that duty. But he had that duty naturally and morally already. So it would just be a further binding to do it and circumcision would would be a reminder and by grace, a powerful help to him as he serves his offspring in the household. Thank you for that. Okay, let's go on to the second point here under the Abrahamic covenant. 1689 federalism splits Abraham into two. By that we mean two fundamentally different ways of dealing with Abraham. At least Nehemiah Cox does. Dr. Renahan, even after reviewing his book, um, I, I'm not quite sure that he does this. He seems to build a cumulative case, but I maybe have misread it. But certainly uh, it's clear in Nehemiah Cox where Genesis 12, Genesis, Genesis 15 is the covenant of grace, which in their system is the new covenant revealed they don't like to typically use the word administered and then genesis 17 is the covenant of circumcision which is a covenant that is carnal in respects carnal things so the first is spiritual second carnal i would just note this comes back i think to my point about you know baptist theologies i think to be consistent do have to impose some type of bifurcation like this somewhere in my opinion state it respectfully not pejoratively to uh, uphold anti-paper baptism so we can go to that first quote this is from nehemiah Cox, uh page 116 of that that book quote this was a covenant grace and mercy originating from the mere goodness and undeserved favor of God toward Israel. Yet it was not that covenant of grace, which God made with Abraham for all his spiritual seed. 
Although it is granted that this covenant ultimately related to spiritual blessings, yet it was not immediately and directly a covenant of spiritual blessings, nor could it ever convey the carnal seed of Abraham as such a right and interest in them. There he's speaking of the covenant of circumcision in Genesis 17. Benjamin, what are your first thoughts when you when we read that? Yeah, I think that um, I have read, uh, I haven't complete, completely finished Denault's book, but I'm starting to get into some of Nehemiah Cox's um, writings uh, in that section. And uh, it's been a while, but I, I think I've, I've also read an article that touches on this in the book uh, Puritan Theology by um, Dr. Joel Beakey and uh, Dr. Mark Jones, where I think he, Dr. Jones especially, touches on uh, Cox's theology. Um, yeah, I think that what you see is the multiplication of distinctions and um, categories in order to vindicate his ultimate uh, his ultimate presupposition, which is that there is a, a substantive difference between the covenant with Abraham and the and the covenant that we enjoy in Jesus Christ. And I think that he recognizes that if that position is upheld, that upheld, then the Baptist position fails. Now, maybe not all Baptists would, would agree with that. They would maybe hold hold to a different point of view. But I think that he's correct in saying that is where the battleground is. And I think that it's simply belied by how the apostles address the Abrahamic covenant. So I think that where you would look at, for example, the the, um, the letter to the Hebrews chapter 6, where it speaks about the oath given to Abraham, that's, that's simply set forth as a buttress for the faith of the Lord's people today, right? And later on, and of course, he, Hebrews 11, um, it speaks about the faith of Abraham in a, in a wonderful way together with the rest of the hall of faith. Hebrews, um, sorry, Romans chapter 4, we've already touched on, very important, as well as Hebrews 9, 10, and 11. Um, they they speak to this. And, and I just want to especially speak of 11, because to me, I think that Romans 11 is probably the strongest text from our point of view, and one that almost brings, brings us all the way, if we would simply think about it. There, Paul speaks about the wild olive tree and the, the good olive tree, and the good olive tree um, consists of the Old Testament saints, including the patriarchs, as well. And um, it speaks about how the Jewish people, for the most part, after Christ, were broken off of that uh, that tree through their unbelief, whereas the believing Gentiles were grafted in. Now, I, I know there's different ways to understand the the argument there, but I think it's very clear where Jesus, sorry, where Paul speaks about the the root bearing the tree. I think that the root there would be the patriarchs and the promises given to them. And so I think that argument given in Romans 11, but especially in the context of the whole argument of the book of Romans and the whole argument of the New Testament is that, that the, the covenant is one and the same where it speaks of the promises of salvation and eternal uh, perfect righteousness and eternal life given through the mediator jesus christ and i think that's consistent with what we've said so far now if we would speak about uh things that don't 
concern its substance, right, that don't concern salvation through Jesus Christ, we can recognize that there's a diversity of covenant administrations. And so one of those would be a particular land promise given to Abraham and his descendants that we would we would say properly belongs to the Abrahamic covenant as it is a specific administration of the covenant of grace. Um, and so um, if you would divorce those elements of the 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 Abrahamic covenant from the the central part of the whole, which is salvation in Jesus Christ, then yes, we could we can say that that is uh, that is something that is an important part of the Abrahamic covenant, which doesn't concern the new covenant. Similarly, we don't circumcise today; we do baptize because um, the the Abrahamic covenant, as a particular historical covenant, as an administration of the covenant of grace, is no longer binding. Um, so we recognize that that difference. However, I think that our, our difference recognizes both continuity. Our uh, system, I should say, under, recognizes uh, both continuity and discontinuity and puts them in their proper perspective. Whereas I would say that the uh, the other point of view that Nehemiah Cox represents is not giving due justice to that. And and I would simply and I'll conclude with this: to say that if we would. If we will be speaking about gracious blessings that are communicated to sinners apart from the mediator Jesus Christ, then then I think that bears many questions, right? It bears a further examination, right? In what way could any sinner receive a gracious blessing apart from faith in, in the mediator Jesus Christ? And if and uh, if that is the case, then um, then I think that either you're you're left with um, God. Uh, operating in in a way that would be contrary to his dealings with us today, or that would be um, uh, would would be flatly inconsistent with with other New Testament teachings. So that would be the concern I would raise. Mm. Yeah, that that's very uh, thought provoking, brother. Thank you for that. I agree with you that we can affirm there are differences. And we would just put that under the word administration. There are peculiarities to that administration, circumcision, sacrifices, Canaan, so on and so forth, which are no more. The thing is, and we'll have to get to this probably next time, equivocation comes up here because they'll use the word substance for that concept, which from a historical theological standpoint, I think introduces introduces massive equivocation into the discussion. Uh, Michael, did you want to speak to that at all? No, I think Benjamin covered it well. Okay. Well, how about we finish out this uh, last subpoint B, and then we can wrap up for this evening, and the Lord willing, continue another time. But here's another quote from Nehemiah Cox. Uh, concerning infants and the church. He says, quote, It is granted that Jewish infants were born members of the church. This privilege they had in the flesh. But this clearly belongs to the national and typical church state of that people. This state is dissolved by the gospel, who means the new covenant era, and is so inconsistent with its ministry that the placing of the one necessarily infers the abolition of the other. Therefore, this right and privilege of the Jew, which was in the very foundation of their national church state, 
as separated from the Gentiles, cannot be transferred into because it will not fit with the gospel dispensation. End quote. Hmm. Michael, how would you respond to those assertions that Nehemiah Cox is making? Okay, so they're members of the church, but it's a national and typical church state. So it's a church, but a church that doesn't have to do primarily with salvation. Right. I think you're coming back to the point of emphasis again. The way they view it is they, they'll put primary, yeah, national, any kind of carnal, historical, national, racial, so on and so forth. That's going to be number one. And if spirituality is present, it's a secondary thing. And if it's if it's present in space and time, it's not there by virtue of that covenant. It's there by virtue of the new covenant, which is the covenant of grace retroactively reaching back and being revealed in some way. So why even speak of the church at all? Because we, they and we agree that that's a spiritual word, not a national or physical word. That's a fair question. I'd be interested to know what they you know. It's quite, a, it's quite an omission, but it, it really is strange that they could be born members of the church. And yet that's only a fleshly privilege. It doesn't seem to compute to me. It also, I wonder, what do they think about the future of the Jews now under the new new covenant? Do they have any promises remaining to them? Will there be an end gathering of the Jews? How do they read Romans 11? I can tell you, I can tell you how Brandon Adams reads it. If you go actually to the bottom, the very bottom of the outline, it's the very last sub point. Uh, Brandon says, Romans 11, this is a direct quote from his recent video, Four Answers for Toby, which were responses to questions, I guess, uh, Pastor Toby Sumter had, had raised. Brandon says, quote, the olive tree of Romans 11 is similar, meaning similar to what he says of John 15. The tree itself is not to be equated with the covenant, though it is related to the different covenants. The tree can be understood as Israel. Like the vine, it should be understood in both its typical and antitypical sense. The root of the tree is the covenant of circumcision, which was made with the patriarchs and their natural offspring. God promised to multiply Abraham's natural offspring as the stars of heaven, which was the nation of Israel, the natural branches. But again, with the end of the old covenant in 70 AD, the natural branches lost their connection to the root, their privilege was forfeited by their disobedience, and they were cut off. The only natural offspring that remained with the privileged connection to the root is Jesus, the offspring of Abraham, who would bless the nations. He transformed the tree as the new Israel. Jesus is now the trunk, and only those united to Christ through faith are grafted in as branches. Note that it is through faith, not simply a profession of faith, that one is grafted into the tree. Mm. That answer your question? Well, it answers what they say, but it still doesn't make any sense. They've got the tree, and yet in the New Testament, somehow the nature of the tree completely changes. I know, brother. When so I it turns from a natural tree to a spiritual tree because of the coming of Christ. But I guess you have to say that because Paul speaks of our salvation as Gentiles are being grafted into that same root. 
But if the root was a covenant of circumcision only, a natural or outward thing, then of course that root would have to change. But that seems to violate the entire thrust of his of Paul's image. He's speaking of continuity. I mean, if anything, that's an image of continuity. One tree, most of the natural branches broken off, but now wild branches grafted in with the hope that the natural would be regrafted. Right. I'm right there with you. I, I think I agree with you. And I would say, too, why were the natural branches cut off? Unbelief. Unbelief. Yes. What does that then say about the nature of their covenant relation to God? Essential yeah. of all else was faith. And thus it was the covenant of grace whose sole condition has always been faith. Amen. Benjamin, you look like you're itching to say something. Yeah, brother. I think that, um, yeah, when, when we, I, th I think that what you see here is that there is a straining um, to incorporate all the biblical data, especially when you're dealing with, with Romans 11. I think that uh, what we would all agree with is that we need to allow the clear passage to interpret the unclear, right? And so, to be to be charitable, I think that the 1689 system uh, would be looking at other texts as the clear passages, which delineate the in their understanding. They would say that there are other passages that are more clear than Romans 11, and so Romans 11 would would fall into the unclear category. But it it seems to me that self-evidently evidently, you look at Romans 9, 10, and 11, and it's simply that is Paul's uh, Paul's argument as to what is the relation between the Old Covenant and the New. That is where he's addressing that. And together with the book of Galatians and, and parts of Hebrews, it's about the clearest text you're going to find. And where you're getting with Romans 11, which is the, about the very nature of the church in relation to Israel, I think that it, it it's it's simply not going to be able to sustain your point of view if you're going to draw that bifurcation in that way. I think that there needs to be a more careful study put there. And to be fair, you know, I th I think that um, even many Reformed people don't do do justice to Romans 11 uh, today. I think it's it's saddening to me that people would not uh, recognize the promise to Israel that's held forth there and the promise all nations through there and gathering and the, the blessing that will attend to that um but i think also in elements to the uh, of uh, our ecclesiology where we need to do justice to that and recognize that there is such a thing as people who fall away from the faith there is such thing as being broken off because not all faith is saving and i think anyone who's been in the pastoral ministry or been in the church any length of time they know what a heartbreak it is where people who really seem to show much promise, uh, they they fell away. Um, to me, Romans eleven is is a very important warning, but also for for so many areas of theology, it has a lot to teach us. And I think the more attention to that, we could have avoid uh, that we could all avoid some some serious errors. Thank you for that, Benjamin. That warning. Uh, you're making me think, obviously, Paul says that right there. Do not be haughty, but fear. Um, it's not a, a place for boasting. We're to have trembling. But the Lord would be so merciful to graft us in who are not natural to the tree. Praise God for that.
Um, I think it's best if we probably hit the brakes there and we can continue at a different time. Michael, are there, is there, are there any final words that you'd like to leave us with? I would just reiterate in the Christian use of the Psalms, we have a wonderful encouragement to our faith that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. That we celebrate the same Christ, the same grace, the same salvation as Adam, Abraham, David, all the way to the New Testament. We see things more clearly and fully now. We have a much better dispensation of the covenant of grace. But it is the same covenant. And we ought to rejoice in that and thank God. Amen. We have much for rejoicing. Well, we'll end there. And um, thank you for listening. May the Lord be with you and use this for your spiritual profit.